Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we're in Parshat Chaye Sarah. As, we, as we've said, we are in the last third of every Torah portion now. Um, and... So last week in the last third, we of course had the, the end of the story of Hagar and Sarah, uh, and we have um, at the very end of that narrative set, we have uh, Hagar finding a wife for Ishmael, for her son. Uh, she finds him an Egyptian wife, and we know that he goes on to have 12 chieftains uh, as his offspring, and uh, many Many both of his and the and the tribes we're going to see later, the groups of peoples we're going to see later, descending from Avraham and Keturah. These are many of them are well attested in the ancient Near Eastern literature, and so we know that these are peoples that lived in the region. So, uh, as often happens with Torah, uh, these people who had peoples who had uh, a relationship with early Israel of trading rights probably social interaction, business interactions, um, some cultural interaction. These peoples um, get uh, attached to someone who is attached to the Abrahamic family, right? So they express these business and social ties through a genealogy and through uh, retrojecting kinship onto Avraham and Avraham's descendants, the early Israelites. Yeah? This is what they do. So this is how we get the 12 sons of Jacob, 12, you know, tribes loosely confederated, become um, the descendants of an eponymous ancestor who are all brothers. All of that is how Torah talks about peoples who had relationships with early Israel. So lots of these names attested over lots. It's a huge area that it talks about from Arabia all the way up through northern Syria, going through the Fertile Crescent. Um, so this is like a huge region that we're talking about with lots of different kinds of small groupings that here get attached to Israel through an imaginary um, kinship structure and genealogy. <clears throat> That's why we get so many genealogies here. Uh, it's to explain uh, early Israel's relationship with some of these peoples. Uh, so we're going to, so we, we did the end of the Hagar narrative last time. What we didn't do last time, but that was in the last third of last week's Torah portion was the Akedah. Immediately after Hagar gets a wife for Ishmael, we have, um, we have the story of Avraham taking Isaac early in the morning, uh, to uh, turns out Har Hamoriah is the tradition, uh, the mountain where he binds Isaac to the altar uh, and is about to uh, bring down the knife uh, on his throat when, of course, the angel calls to Abraham to stop and not to harm the boy. I feel like it's important to know that that happened before this because now we're going to get some stuff about Isaac uh, and Rebecca. And the rabbinic tradition spends a lot of time 
uh, figuring out what's going on with Isaac here. We're going to look at some of that just to show you. And when I tell you there's a lot of discussion about this, I'm going to prove it <laughs> this week. I'm um, just to show you a little bit about what I mean often when I say that, but also because it really is a place where the rabbis focus. They focus a lot of attention on one word in Torah that we're going to see in this morning's Parsha, um, but we're picking up. Um, so Chaye Sarah begins, the beginning of our Parsha is Sarah dies, and that beginning sentence of this week's Parsha immediately follows the story of the Akedah, right? The binding of Isaac. So the end of last week's Parsha and end after Hagar is the Akedah. The beginning of this week's Parsha is, is that Sarah dies. Chaye Sarah means the life of Sarah, meaning the totality of the days of the life of Sarah were because she dies. And so if you listen to my sermon at Rosh Hashanah, the rabbis connect the fact that the very next thing after the Akedah is the death of Sarah, that is causal for the rabbis. That is not an accident. Sarah dies because Satan tells her what's happening with her son and with Abraham, her husband. Um, now, if we follow on the mood of last week's reading of the Parsha, already last week we might have had, you could imagine some tension between Sarai or Sarah at that point, Sarah uh, and Avraham around the raising of Yitzchak, right? Possibly she's not terribly pleased with the circumcision business that his invisible God told him to do to his son, which was an Egyptian practice and other people's, but not Mesopotamian. If that's the case, one has to ask, Avraham and his son get up early in the morning, and they leave for the Akedah. They leave for the binding that's about to happen. Sarah gets up. She makes coffee. She makes Avraham his coffee. She makes Isaac his cereal. And where are they? Even if one assumes there are servants who took care of that, one would assume Sarah would know the location of her only son at some point in the day. Ishmael's been banished. Yitzchak is clearly the heir, her only heir. So she, at some point during the day, must have said, so anybody seen Isaac? Where is he? He was supposed to take his medicine at three o'clock. I haven't seen him. Right? What are they going to, what are they going to tell her? Uh, okay, well, I, he got up this morning really early with Avraham and they left. All right. Has she been told where they're going? We don't know. Has she been told what's happening? We don't know. Does Abraham lie to her? We don't know. But what we know is it takes them three days to get there. So not only is he gone that day, but then they don't come home that night. She gets up the next morning, and they're still gone. That whole day, they're still gone. That night, she goes to bed. They're still gone. The next day, she gets up. They're still gone. The next, right? That whole day, they're gone. She goes to bed. They're gone. So... We have to imagine Sarah, if she knows what's happening, is really unhappy with Abraham, may think her son is dead. If she doesn't know, she has to be a bit concerned. <laughs> like, where where are they for at least three days? It took them three days to get there. It's going to take them three days to get home. That's six days. So, and presumably n no word, right? Or we're not told. So um, 
So that, so that's kind of the situation for Sarah. That's all, we don't hear anything. All we hear is she dies. That's the next thing we hear. Okay. <clears throat> so that's the beginning of this week's Parsha is the death of Sarah. Uh, we are going to start at the triennial beginning of Chaye Sarah, which is 24, chapter 24, verse 53 of the book of Genesis. We have Eliezer, the servant of Avraham, who has come to search for a bride for Yitzchak. Avraham wants a bride from their stomping grounds, his and Sarah's stomping grounds, from his, right, from the people they know from their family. And so Eliezer is charged with finding this appropriate bride from this family grouping for Yitzchak. We all know that story of of him finding Rebecca, who waters all the camel, uh, the the caravan and their camels. This woman who's incredibly strong, who runs to fulfill that, who's gracious, who's generous, who's energetic, who takes charge, who welcomes strangers. Right? This is Rebecca, and so we are at the point in the story in Chayesara where. Uh, the agreement is being negotiated. Uh, it starts with Lavan and Betuel at verse 50, uh, and then it switches, and Lavan kind of, uh, Betuel kind of disappears. She is Rivka Bat Betuel. She is Rebecca, the daughter of Betuel. Uh, her brother is Lavan. So then we see Lavan and his mother involved in the story. We don't know what happens to Betuel, but what we know is that um, attested in the ancient Near Eastern literature are situations where the mother and her son negotiate the marriage of the daughter, of her daughter, of his sister. This is attested. So the the brother of the maiden would have had, if they have standing in the clan, would have, in the patriarchy, would have had a lot of power to negotiate her future. And that is what we see, uh, Lavan charged with here. So that was verse 50. We're going to drop down to, uh, 53. The deal has been made. So we see at 53, the servant brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. And he gave presents to her brother and her mother. So what is appropriate is to bring out uh, things that will be the way that a bride price is paid for Rivka, compensating her family for her loss in terms of her services to the family and in terms of offspring. Because she is going to go live patrilocally. She's going to go live with the husband's family. And so all of her children become... uh attached to the husband's family. So the bride price is compensation for the loss of both her service and her children. And so that's what we see happening here. Gifts are given to her mother and her brother. These are traditional gifts. You still see this in many cultures where, right, the groom's family gives gifts to the bride's family. That This also proves how wealthy Isaac's family is. This is proving to Rebecca's family that this is a good match uh, and they are paying a good bride price and this is a deal for Lavan and for Betuel. 
Then he and the men with him ate and drank, and they spent the night. When they arose next morning, he said, Give me leave to go to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the maiden remain with us some ten days, then you may go. Traditionally, a bride was fetid for a week to ten days, and they don't want Rebecca to miss out on all the festivities um, that would have been um, in her honor. He said to them, Do not delay me now that God has made my errand successful. Give me leave that I may go to my master. And they said, Let us call the girl and ask for her reply. This is not about her consent to marry. That arrangement has already been made. He's already paid. It's done. The arrangement here, I mean, the the go caller and let's ask her is about, is she willing to give up her parties and to leave right now to go to a foreign land right now with like kind of no preparation, her trousseau, right? Getting right, like that everything would have just been happening very fast. They ask Let's see if she will give permission. They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? Meaning right now, not at all. She has no options, right? She has to go with him. Um, but right now is, is what the, the text means. And she said, I will. So they sent off their sister, Rebecca and her nurse, along with Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebecca. She is sent off uh, with her uh, Minekat, her, uh, her wet nurse. So this would have been the nurse that took care of Rebecca since she was born, who nursed her and who watched over her. Often the wet nurse became a guardian, um, for the little one and, you know, just spent their lives essentially protecting and teaching and guiding, um, the girl in their care. Uh, and we we do have Devorah's name uh, attested in our text and her burial at a very special place. So Devorah was uh, a beloved member of this family. This is where we see her going off with Rivka uh, to her new place. Often uh, we have wealthy young women. When they marry, they are given a nurse. Uh, and we have this all over the literature. And they bless Rebecca, saying, Achotenu, our sister, may you grow into thousands of myriads, may your offspring seize the gates of their foes. So we get a bracha for Rivka that very much parallels the bracha to Avraham, right, of huge fertility for her. This is the bracha given to her. Then Rebecca and her maids arose, mounted the camels, and followed the man. So the servant took Rivka and went his way. So now Rebecca's journeying, right, towards the, towards Canaan, towards Canaan, in this retinue. Uh, 62, Isaac had just come back from the vicinity of Be'er Lahai Ro'i. What do we know about Be'er Lahai Ro'i? What do we know about that place? That's Anybody? where Ishmael, uh, was, uh, left. He got the water right there. So that's where Hagar encounters the Malach. And she calls the place Be'er L'chairo'i, right? About this whole thing about being seen. And I went on seeing after I'd been seen and, and the well and all of that. So this is, this is associated with Hagar and Ishmael. For Isaac had settled in the region of the Negev. 
And this is where the rabbis spend a lot of time wondering what is going on. Verse 63. So Isaac goes out. We don't know what exactly this verb is. This is where the major conversation happens. He goes out into the field and we get the infinitive form. So to blank. And it's the blank we're concerned about that we're concerned with. He goes out into the field. It says, Lasuach. And the big conversation is, what does Lasuach mean? If you look at the JPS translation as we have it here, it says he went out walking in the field. So Lasuach has something to do with walking. Although we don't usually see the word Lasuach to mean walking. So what is the etymology of this word? Nobody's sure, but there's a lot of ink spent, spilled, trying to deal with this word. So we're gonna get, we're gonna go to that. Leaf note era. So just before evening, by Yisa Enav. Now remember, this is really important. Abraham lifts his eyes and sees the strangers. Hagar lifts her eyes and sees the well. Now we're gonna get it with Yitzchak. He lifts his eyes. And what does Vayar, and what does he see? Vehine gmalim ba'im. Lo, camels approaching. Does he know what this means? Does he know that it's the caravan coming back with his bride? We don't know. Vatisa rivka et eneha. And now rivka lifts her eyes. Vatere et yitzchak. And she sees yitzchak. Literally, she fell off her camel. Um, but probably it means she descended from the camel. Like, I find it hard to believe the Torah would talk about our matriarch at this moment falling off her camel. Um, she descends from her camel. And she says to the servant, who is this man? who's walking in the field. So here we do get a word for walking. Now, is he changed what he's done, what he was doing before and is holeching now? He's walking now? Or is this just another word for what he was doing before? And he was, oh, Barry, I know you're not jumping ahead of me. You're not jumping ahead of me. I know you're not. And it's not from bent over, by the way. Necessarily. Um, okay. So he is out walking in the field. Uh, who is this guy walking in the field, Likratenu, to come meet us? So possibly he has changed what he's doing, and now he sees the camels. He's walking towards them. Vayomer ha'eved, and the servant says, who Adoni? He is my master. So what is so what does Rebecca learn in that moment? If she's been fetched to be the bride of his master, and he says, this is my master, then she understands that this is her groom. And the next thing she does, what does she do when she realizes this? She took her veil and covered herself. We do not have attestation in uh, Mesopotamia, that, that women as wives were veiled. We have no record of that. So it would not have been the norm for a woman who was betrothed or married to veil. 
So the question of commentators is, so what is Rebecca doing here? Like, wh- why does she veil herself? We know Tamar veils herself when she wants to trick Judah, right, into marrying her, I mean, into sleeping with her. She veils herself to disguise herself. Um, he mistakes her for a prostitute, right? So possibly prostitutes were veiled. We don't, we don't know, but what we do know is that, um, Mesopotamian texts refer to the bride as veiled. So it is possible what's happening right now is Rebecca's told that's your groom. Rebecca wants to signal to the groom that she is his intended bride. That she's not just anybody, right? She veils to say, I'm the bride. I'm who you've been waiting for. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, so they get into a conversation. Isaac then brought her, meaning Rebecca, into the tent of his mother, Sarah. So she goes into the matriarch's tent. She takes possession of the matriarch's tent. Vayikach et Rivka. So he takes her and he consummates the marriage in his mother's tent. This makes Rivka now the matriarch. This is an official act of escorting her into the chambers of the queen, if you will, right? And she becomes, she then becomes the occupant of Sarah's tent. And for the only the second time in Torah, we get this verb, that he loves, that she, uh, that he loves her, that he, Isaac, loves Rebecca. We usually get, you know, action. We don't get emotion in Torah. Here we're told he loves her. And Isaac is comforted after the death of his mother. It just says after his mother. We can assume it means after her, meaning she's gone, right? And he finds comfort with Rivka. Okay. So let's go back to this idea of um, Lasuach. And uh, Rachel, you can pull up the article, What is Isaac Doing? So what's the first thing we know about this verb is that it is a beloved, what do we love? A hapax legomenon. <laughs> what is... Right, so we learned that lasuach here is a hapex legomenon. This is why it's so hard to translate it, because it is the only time we see this in the Bible. Lasuach is the only, in, in the Torah, this is the only time we see this verb. It only appears here. If it only appears here, it's very hard then to, to guess at what it means, and you want to tie it to what it means later, or what it means in Arabic, or what it means, right, you're, you're trying desperately as a translator to figure out where to look for an occasion of the stem of this verb appearing somewhere else. And that's what all of our scholars do. That's what all of uh, both, both biblical scholars and traditionally the rabbis were trying to do is figure out what does this word mean? What's he doing? All right, so uh, if we come down, the Hebrew, here, there, that's good. All right, so here we have the Hebrew uh, root, um, sin vav chet, is a hapax, meaning it only appears once in the Bible. If there's something that you are questioning about where, what does it mean, you go to the BDB. 
you go to the Brown Driver Briggs Dictionary for Biblical Hebrew to research what this stem might mean. The BDB, like these are, these are Christian Bible scholars who are experts in uh, unpacking, translating uh, Hebrew and other uh, neighboring languages. So they in the BDB, which is, you know, authoritative for many of us who were taught to use the BDB, um, assumes that Lasuach is a scribal error for sin vav tet to go about. Lasot, to go about. So if it's a scribal error, then what they meant to write was Lasot, not Lasuach. And this may be the basis of the NJPS translation that we just read, that he's walking about in the field. But it notes, like in our text, it notes that the meaning of the word is uncertain. So that we don't know what it means. Okay. So then we go to ancient translations and say, well, what did they think? You know, people who were closer to this language or at least inherited a tradition around this and and related languages, what did they think? Most translations relate lasuach to the noun sicha, conversation, which is still today in modern Hebrew. You would say we're having a sicha, we're having a conversation. So it's the verbal form of the word sicha, conversation, meaning to make conversation, to talk. Conversation implies what? Two people. Lasuach, to have a conversation, implies you're talking to someone or with someone. The Greek translation, right, the early Greek translation, translates lasuach as to meditate. The Vulgate, so the Latin translation, uh, translates it as asad meditandum, in order to meditate. Aramic, Aramaic Targumim, so when it gets translated into Aramaic, are almost universal in translating it, litzalea, to pray. Okay? So early on, it gets related to conversation, possibly to meditation, and then in Aramaic, almost universally, it's translated to pray, meaning speaking that's about speaking, speaking the the longings, the thoughts, the whatever of one's heart in uh, relationship to God. All right. For the rabbis, when did, when are we told he's he's doing this? He's walking around or he's talking or he's doing whatever? We're told he does that right before evening, right? So for the rabbis, they're like, oh, well, this was his custom. He used to go out and do this, Every day before evening. And so in the Talmud, um, they assign the morning service to Avraham, because remember, Avraham got up early in the morning and did all this stuff, and so he's davening in the morning. <laughs> and uh, the evening service is Yaakov, and almost all medieval Jewish commentators, uh, both Rashi and Sforno, among others, support this understanding as la suach, as to pray, and Isaac is which service? Mincha, the late afternoon service, is attributed because of this verse to Isaac. Isaac every day would go out at this time and he would pray. He would meditate and pray in the field. He's a nice yeshiva bucher who knows it's time to daven. 
uh, in the afternoon, or he's just kind of a kind of a dreamy spiritual guy, and like this is what he does, and he has a deep, rich inner life. I just read a commentary from Institute for Jewish Spirituality, uh, Larry Bach, who says, you know, whatever the interpretation, clearly Isaac is a really spiritual guy with this rich inner life. You'll see that I don't agree. Okay. <laughs> Shocking, I know. So Ibn Ezra, one of our uh, medieval exegetes, says no. He doesn't mean praying or meditating. Lasuach, he says, is lalechet ben hasichim. So he says lasuach has to do with sichim, bushes. He's bushing. So what does that mean? He's out walking amongst the bushes, out in the He's walking among the foliage, the, the shrubbery out in the field. And he sees it as a cognate from the Arabic sacha to travel about. Okay. So he, in the medieval context, this term meant uh, a long distance spiritual journey. Ibn Ezra, who was fluent in Arabic, uh, and often referred to that language as Lishon Yishmael, the language of Yishmael, the language of Hagar, here in his commentary, in his grammatical studies, knows that in Arabic, Sacha is to travel. Okay. But we have no, we have no proof of what the word comes from. Is it related to Arabic? Is it related to bushes? Is it related to conversation? We don't know. All right. So it would seem then that even Ezra, Right is going to the Arabic derivation and only looking there. Rachel, you can come down. Okay. So why does he not talk about the Hebrew verb, right, <clears throat> which also has a religious connotation? <clears throat> he probably wants to emphasize a Hebrew derivation for lasuach, this verb we have. So he implies that the Hebrew verb comes from the Hebrew noun sichim, bushes. Right? He wants to give it a Hebrew root, not an Arabic root. He wants to say, no, this is Hebrew, but he knows the Arabic means to want to walk around, but he's got to tie that back to Hebrew, so he comes up with sichim, bushes. So the scholars are stretching to try to figure out what's going on. Why is he working so hard to make this mean walk around? Why, why doesn't even Ezra just go with, okay, so maybe he's praying. I'm curious about that part of this whole argument through the ages is what's what are people's agendas in translating it walking around versus um uh praying or meditating right so um so rashbam uh talks about lasuach basadeh He's what he's lasuaching whatever that means basadeh in the field klomar that is to say lataat ilanot to plant trees and to look into, to investigate um, the doings of his workers. So Isaac is going about the family business. He's the patriarch's son. He's inheriting everything. He's the only heir. He's the heir apparent. He's going out to see what's going on with the workers. That's what a good estate boss does right is go out he's he's helping he's planting he's doing stuff he's working with them he's working alongside them he wants to supervise the work he's being a responsible son who's inheriting 
the family dry good business, right? Or the Shmata factory. He's going to investigate and take charge of and be responsible for and involved in the family business that he's going to inherit. So think about what that means for Rashbam. What's Rashbam's agenda with Isaac? To translate it this way, what, what's your agenda about Isaac? So we're going to talk about all of these. So remember, he's either walking around, he's either looking into the family business and participating in the family business, or he is meditating, praying. All right? You've got an agenda in interpreting this verb one of these ways. Um, so you can come down. Thank you. Radak, here we go with Radak. Rabbi David Kimchi of Provence, another medieval exegete, another medieval famous commentator. <clears throat> Isaac went out, la suach basadeh, have we said la suach, we don't, that's the word we're concerned with, basadeh, in the field, klomar, that is to say, letayel ben asichim, to, um, letayel, to, uh, to travel, to journey among the sichim, the bushes. So another, another exegete supporting Ibn Ezra's interpretation that this means he's walking around between the bushes. Based on Hebrew, Sichim, Lasuach comes from that. Uh, okay. So then we look at the Malbim, a later, uh, a later commentator, much later, 1809 to 1879, like it's trying to fuse these. During the time for afternoon prayer, he went out lasuach in the field. What this means is to be alone there and to pour out his speech before God. For it has become clear to me that siach refers to speech. Barry's going to push the bending thing. He really is. Okay. Um, refers to speech thoughts that shoot from one's imagination. Okay. So one imagines as one is in relationship to the divine, and this is conversation that just kind of jumps out of your mouth. It jumps out of your head. You just can't help yourself, that you're so into it that these thoughts just come out of your mouth. And in that sense, it's about talking. Okay. So in Torah Tmima, Baruch Epstein, 1860 to 1942, we have not found in any place that the word lasuach means to travel about. Tiyul, like our guy just said. Why is he saying letayel? We don't have indications of that anywhere. Therefore, certainly there is no meaning here, as many explain letayel in the field. The rabbi's explanation is the only true literal one, meaning the rabbi's explanation is that he is praying in the field is the only legit one. Okay, Rachel, you can stop sharing. So part of, so even if Barry's writing is something about bending over and in that sense, prayer or whatever, what's the agenda right here for folks? Right? What's the agenda? If, if he's walking around in the field, what does that suggest about Isaac? He's just little yelling. He's out there wandering around in the field. What does that suggest? People who want to translate it that way, what are they getting? What, what does that mean about Isaac? Mark? I'm wondering why the word is lifted up and separated from the Rebecca Isaac connection. I don't understand. Rebecca's moving toward Isaac. Isaac's with the camel moving toward Rebecca. He's walking. He's walking. 
and now we're focusing on this word, why isn't it interpreted in the context of this shidduch? Because this is happening before he sees her. He he's lasuaching in the field before he sees the camels. Yes, Bert. The uh, women's Torah translation, they use uh, they use strolling. So he in the women's Torah commentary, he's strolling. Strolling, but but when he's when he's coming towards Rebecca, he is striding. Okay, so lasuach is to stroll, but once he sees Rebecca, lalechet means he is, right, he's really going. He is going. Okay, so he is striding, lalechet means to walk, but the, 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 right, so the women's Torah commentary, what's their agenda about Isaac? That he's, he's one way before he sees his bride, and he is way another way. He is way more peppy, right? And way more into whatever he's doing when he's doing it uh, after having seen Rebecca, okay? So there's an agenda that makes Isaac excited, right? And the women's Torah commentary here has Isaac, I mean, if you're striding, either he's being bossy, oh, there's my woman, I gotta, I'm gotta. i going to go show her who's boss, or he's super excited. But they clearly have a change in him. Before and after he sees his intended. But if he if if he was praying or meditating, probably it would have said he stopped and then he went to her. Okay, this, so this almost implies that he was strolling and then increased the pace. Okay, so Bert is is going to suggest that the jape that the women's Torah commentary is obviously interpreting against that he's praying because he's. Because he would have had to stop that to, to do something else. Okay, Dana? I was just questioning what exactly is it's Isaac thinking when he's walking, striding. And that's what everybody, all these commentators and translators are trying to infer. You know, what is Isaac thinking before he uh, sees Rachel? Rebecca, yeah, before he sees her. I mean, Re- uh, Rebecca, Rebecca. So, so, so what? I mean, so he could be thinking about his mom. He could be thinking about his dad. He could be thinking about her. He could be thinking about the area where his brother was, right? So there's lots to, there's a lot they don't know. Right. So why? So, so part of my question always is like, why are the rabbis? And I just gave you a smattering, right, from this one article. You can imagine how many more arguments there are for and against a certain interpretation. Why are they so fixated on what he was doing, right? Like, obviously, if there's this much written about it, they don't talk about lalechet. We know what lalechet means. He he walks over to her, right? So, but where there's this apex legomenon where we don't know. They're very interested in, to go to your point, Dana, the, the rabbinic tradition is very interested in what's going on with Isaac when he's alone, right? When he's just a dude, what kind of man is he? We don't know. We're not told very much about Isaac. We get the Akedah, we get the death of Sarah. We're told that he's comforted after the death of his mother by Rebecca, which means he's upset. Right? To be comforted means you're in a state of discomfort. So obviously, he missed Sarah. He was deeply connected to Sarah and, and now has some comfort because he, he has Rebecca. But that's all we know. 
He could be in mourning. Maybe he's wandering because he's out there going, what, you know, how am I supposed to live in a world without her? Psychologists, I'm sure, can have a field day. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, where's fish? Where are all those people who are supposed to weigh in from a psychological perspective, people? Where are you? Sleeping. You're sleeping. Went to his mother's tent. <laughs> right. His right. Um, tachshit behavior, very un-Jewish. Walking around. I'm not sure what that means. Mark Fish, speak. I was wondering then uh, what the relationship between uh, Isaac and Abraham is at this point um, and how that affects him. And uh, that uh, they're living now uh, in the area where Ishmael was, not where Rebecca was. So lovely, Mark. Thank you for introducing that dynamic, because I, for my preference of interpretation, which I haven't told you yet, um, for my preference of interpretation, we have to take seriously what's going on with Abraham. We have to take seriously that Abraham took him at eight days and had him circumcised, something not known to his clan. And what else did he, and Isaac must know that, he, he sees his own penis, I would assume, he knows he's circumcised, and who did that to him. So that's number one. Number two, he's just, he, he went up three day walk, dad raises the knife, because an invisible voice told him to slaughter his son, he's bound on the altar, tied on the wood, dad's raising the knife, and now an invisible voice says, no, 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 no. Didn't mean it. What, what does that mean for Isaac? What does that mean for Isaac, the only heir to his father, that he's willing to kill him because some invisible God said to, and then decides, oh, no, 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 that's not what God meant because an invisible messenger of God said don't do it. How is this experience from Isaac's perspective? I can't help but think it is a deep trauma that doesn't go away. And the person who loved him and protected him and would have kept him safe from this lunatic was his mother, was Sarah. And when Sarah dies, Isaac loses his only sense of safety in a world where Abraham is the patriarch. Where this guy who's done these things to him is in charge of everything and everybody. All right, so that's going to play key into how I prefer to translate this. But someone else had their hand up. Shelly, you had your hand up. I did. I, had, I was confused. The way I understood it, um, Rebecca arriving happened before Sarah's death. No. The other way around. No. Sarah dies at the beginning of Chaye Sarah. And now we get Rivka at the end of this Parsha. So, yeah, no. That, that then makes sense that, you know, he's grieving. You know, he's lost his his main support, the person who protected him, and sees Rebecca as the person he can cling to. Someone's there for him, right? Now, she's the most important woman in his life. Yes. That's, yes, what I think is happening here. So if you if you translate this as praying, you you want and I because everyone's got an agenda in how they translate, and myself included, obviously. If you have him praying, you want an Isaac who's a deeply spiritual person, 
who's going to head this clan, who has a special covenant relationship with Yahweh. I totally understand the instinct of the rabbis to make Isaac a yeshiva bucher, who's davening at Mincha. I totally understand that instinct. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think it's for me and the the idea that he's out there supervising his father's stuff, okay? But we're not told he's he's doing that. We're not told he's look checking in on the workers. He's doing that. We're told he's just lasuach basada. And so for me, and I have an agenda too. <laughs> I think Isaac has been deeply traumatized. I think Isaac, after the death of his mother, is completely lost. Yes, to David. I think he is emotionally scarred forever by Abraham's strange behavior, his violent behavior. I think he is seriously scarred and damaged. And I think he's wandering around in the field. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He is completely at a loss. If he's with the men and he's back home, he is directly under Avraham's gaze. Who knows what Avraham could do next, decide to do next. I think he wants to be as far from that city center, I mean, the the center of Avraham's world. He wants to be as far away from that as possible. Maybe he's talking to himself, right? He's just, my sense of Isaac is that he's lost, and that he is traumatized. And the death of his mother means his only protector is gone. And he doesn't know anything about life except that he's supposed to marry some person that Elias are supposed to go get. And he's out wandering aimlessly. And when he sees Rebecca, something changes. He, he heads for her, Likrotam, it says in the text, to greet them to meet them, maybe because that's what's polite, maybe that's what's expected of, you know, the son of the patriarch, the heir apparent, is to go meet the retinue as it comes back. That's all fine. But what we're told is that he loves Rebecca. So for me, the agenda is about finally some comfort for Isaac, that he's been lost and when he sees and, and, and comes to and greets Rebecca and brings her into the tent of his mother, he, he is comforted and he loves her for that. And, or he loves her and that's why he's comforted. But for me, that's my agenda is that he, I want to see Isaac rescued from his, you, cause there's no way you can tell me he wasn't traumatized by what his father did to him. There's no way you'll ever convince me of that. Ever. The rabbis want to say he was old enough to agree. He went willingly. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. I think it's a terrible story that way. I think Isaac is lost. And in this partnership with this strong, dynamic, compassionate, wonderful, energetic, loving woman, he's comforted. And I want that for Isaac. To all the emotional trauma he's been through, he's also... Saying, I would think what a lot of people think before they get married. Is, do I really want to do this? Is this something that's going to help my, me in the rest of my life? Are we going to be a companionable couple? All of these things. So that's the other emotion to go along with it in addition to what would my mother think about all 
I, I hope that she, it would make her happy. So then how would you want to translate what he's doing in the field? Just trying to decide, talk to himself. I, I agree. I, I think he's talking to himself. What am I getting myself into where, from where I've just be, where I've just come from? And it's, there's a lot of emotions in all of those things. And I, I think a lot of individuals, men or women or anybody who was getting married, um, goes through all these emotions and then with all these other previous emotions, uh, I'd want to go hide under the bushes. <laughs> I want to go hide under the bushes, Jesus. He might have gone on the walk willingly to be tied up by, to see his father. What? But I doubt he was willing to be tied up. Well, the rabbis say if he's old enough to agree to go, he's old enough to, to fight getting on the, the wood. So he succumbs. He, he voluntarily succumbs or he could have fought his father. I don't know about you, but, right? Fighting your father in the ancient world, you know, I mean, A, but B, that your father's willing to do this to you, that he asks you to get on the wood, right? Even if he agrees, what, how does that make it like any better, right? That, that your father is asking you voluntarily or involuntarily, uh, if you don't get up there, my servants here will, I mean, like, I'm gonna kill you! That, that, literally, like, the, there's just no part of that story that makes any kind of anything. Um, okay. Mark? Okay, wait, but for what Linda said, right, he could, he's got a lot going on. He's anticipating the arrival of his bride. Who sent their servant to pick the bride. Whose servant went to pick the bride? Avraham's. Avraham's. Avraham's servant went to choose the bride. If it doesn't go well with this bride, how do you think Isaac feels about that possibility? Right? He knows dad. And he knows what dad's capable of. Dad has gone to, his 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 agent has gone to choose his fiance, very likely he's out there going, I, I hope this works. Because if not, he, he's had some experiences with Abraham. Mark? Well, as much as I'd like to disagree with you, I, I, I agree. If you look at 62, the sentence immediately before. So we're looking at 62? Now Isaac came from having gone to bear, you know, Ishmael's place, and he dwelt in the negative. So it's consistent with your thesis that he's wandering around trying to find his place. He went to where Ishmael saw God. So I just find the sentence supportive of your... So Mark finds verse 62 supporting this idea that Isaac's kind of wandering around Trying to figure out where his place in the world is. And, you know, he, he goes back to Be'er Lechairo'i, where Hagar encounters God and the Malach, and Ishmael is saved, right? Um, uh, okay, so, um, I, I don't know if that's still David's comment. It's very hard for me to read the chat, um, here in the sanctuary. So, um, you know, that Abraham could be deranged, right? And then we, we had to convince ourselves it was okay to make the ultimate sacrifice. That's absolutely what the tradition did with the Akedah story. And I promise you, Bert, I have a big sticky note on my folder that the next time we come to the Parsha, we will be doing the Akedah um, and looking at some of the ways our tradition has tried to make it okay what happened with Avraham saying yes. 
to the test. Because the question ultimately is because the, the Torah uses the word test. God tested Abraham, right? Nisa is the word test. So the question is, did Abraham pass or fail? The test, right? Mark. <laughs> well, you, you know, the other thing that strikes me is uh, it's not not uh, textual in a sense, but one would imagine that after all of this, with the uh, with the, the trauma not only of what's happened with Abraham, but the loss the loss of Sarah, uh, one would have to imagine, I think, that uh, what uh, what Isaac is doing is ruminating about these kinds of things, and that um, and and uh, the and uh, Rebecca seems to be presented as someone who is very similar to Sarah. Yes, at very similar to Sarah, the way we've read Sarah. Who yes. else is Rebecca very similar to? The rabbis jump to she's very similar to Avraham. Mm. She's willing to leave her family, leave her homeland, leave everything familiar, go to a new place, right? Mm. She she is Avraham in the feminine. Mm. Yitzhak is a little yeshiva bucher. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's like completely a nebisha yeshiva bucher. She is the new leader. She is Avraham. Right. Chesed. Avraham is associated in the tradition with chesed, loving kindness, the way she waters the camels. And right, and so she is seen as the embodiment of Avraham. And that's what keeps things moving in the direction God wants, is that Isaac gets a new Avraham as his partner. So, but very, very good, Mark. But I would say, yes, she's very much like Sarah, the way we've been reading Sarah. I have to believe Sarah would approve, right? Uh, David, you want to say something? Yeah, Amy, um, what follows, I, I think in my mind, your interpretation of, of this uh, Parsha, and it's almost scary to me, is that I think that Avraham is deranged that he's literally lost it and he what does that mean when the patriarch of our religion is viewed as nuts well it certainly changes a lot of things now the tradition doesn't see him as nuts the tradition sees him as talking to god and Barry wants to try to argue what the tradition argues it's not that god wanted to kill the boy of course not that's silly it's that God wants Abraham to want to do God's will. That doesn't help me at all, by the way, Barry. That what? I'm supposed to want to kill my son because God wants it, even though, don't worry, God doesn't really want it. But I should be ready to do it for God. I mean, it's just, it, it doesn't help for some of us. It, it, for me, well, we'll get there in three years. Okay, Lisa? <laughs> I was just going to say also, I, I believe that, that after the Akedah, God never talks to Abraham again, never speaks to him again, which pretty much says a lot um, about the choice he made and the fact that maybe we don't believe in human sacrifice because you made the wrong choice. Um, okay. It's not the way to go. So Right. And so I know Barry's trying to overhear. He's still going. He's saying our civilization needed some way to stay away from this. This text does not say stay away from this. Mm. This text doesn't say that. This text says, in this case, God didn't want it. 
But but Avraham passed the test, so says the tradition, because he was willing to go there. And he was willing to do it. I'm sorry. That does not in any way argue for me. It's not a polemic against don't ever do this. Nowhere does it say it's wrong. Nowhere. It says don't do it. Don't harm him. Period. Even though a minute ago I asked you to. Three days ago, I asked you to. And the it fact that God that. has nothing more to do with him after that doesn't impress you at all? What? Say what? The fact that God doesn't speak to him anymore and they go down the mountain separately, that doesn't speak to you at all? about. Yes, that does. God? I'm arguing with Barry. I'm arguing with oh. Barry. I, yes, it speaks to me. And it says to me, he flunked the test. Yes, he flunked the test. He failed the test. Yes. Yes. Unless the test was that he was supposed to argue with God. Because remember, then he failed the test. Right. right. Yes. Abraham argued. That's right. How could you kill? You are the just God. That's right. How could you kill the innocent along with the guilty? That's right. I agree. My reading, I've already given away three years from now, uh, that, yeah, I think he flunked the test. So we're supposed to argue with God. Yes. Yes. And like Lisa said, God says, you know what? You know what? You, you, you failed. So I'm done. I'm going to pick somebody else to talk to. All right, lots to sit with, lots to hold. But what we can know, what helps me sleep, leaving this Parsha, is that Yitzchak loves Rivka. And he is comforted. And Rivka is with him. How this is working for Rivka, Torah is not interested. But we know Rivka becomes the mother of, right, the heir to Yitzchak, uh, that's a whole nother story. Stay tuned. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.